The scripture text for tonight's sermon is John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, blind, but now I see. I ask, Father, that through this message and through our services, this Sanctity of Life weekend, many would see who haven't yet seen. Open the eyes of the blind, Lord, to the glory of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Last week, we addressed, as you may recall, the issue of racial harmony, racial justice, racial diversity, and I tried to address it by giving you eight biblical ways that parents can help their children love people who are different from themselves. This week, I want to address uh, parents and everybody else about how we can love people different from ourselves, namely by not killing them. You may recall last week that I tried to resist and, and succeeded pretty much in making the sermon into a sermon about disability, since racial differences and disability differences both tempt our fallen human heart to belittle and exclude and put down other people. Well, I'm not going to resist that at all this weekend. That's what this sermon is about. This sermon is about abortion and its relationship to disability. One of the great joys of my life is the rise here at this church of a very significant disability ministry under the leadership of Brenda Fisher. I really do encourage you to go to the new website, um, new as of a few weeks ago, new face, not new name, hopeingod.org, and just search for disability and find the, the ministry page and, and read it and see all the things that God is, is doing. And let's pray that it would grow amazingly because our, our 
culture, our society is filled with people of all kinds of disabilities who do not feel welcome at many churches, probably not even here, depending on what the disability is. And how we would like for that relational culture here to be of such a nature that people of any kind of disability would find an embrace among this, this people. So, uh, I'm thrilled that I am speaking not just for but out of a situation at Bethlehem where we have many children, many young adults, and many older people who are living with living, living with significant handicaps and flourishing among us and helping us know how to love people better when they can do almost nothing. Oh, how important the weaker members of the body are for the stronger. Let me try to set up the situation with regard to abortion. There are in America about 3,000 abortions a day. Worldwide, there are about 130,000 abortions each day, which means that the horrific gut-wrenching reality of Haiti's earthquake happens every day. In the abortion clinics of the world. And it is likely, I think, that if the dismemberment and bloodshed and helplessness of the 130,000 dead babies received as much media coverage as the earthquake victims have and rightly have, that perhaps the same effort to end the slaughter and relieve the suffering would take place. Did you know that Americans, just just Americans, not to mention the rest of the world, have given $1.6 million an hour for the last 10 days for Haitian relief by computer and phone, mainly. It is so unbelievably easy. I just did it again last night. Just so easy to give. I hope you're part of that. We as a church do our corporate thing with our global diaconate. That money is moving. But individually, it's just so easy. Well, it isn't that easy to stand up for the silent destruction of the unborn. You have to work a little harder for that one, which is why 3,000 killings a day in America go for most people unnoticed. Most of these babies are killed between the 10th and the 14th week of gestation because uh, that's what the abortionists say to young folks is the optimal time for dismemberment and evacuation. 
The babies usually look something like this. This is a 13-week fetus. This is a baby. This little baby has lain on my desk for 20 years. It has never been moved. It lays there. It lies there on my desk. Same one I had in 1989 when I marched in the rescues. This little baby looks at me every day for 20 years. This is the size of most. Many bigger, not many smaller, because they're too small. They'll tell you to come back if you come in at six weeks. Um, there are no morally or spiritually significant differences between this baby and a one-month-old outside the womb. None. There are differences. They're just not morally or spiritually of any consequence. Therefore, if it is wrong to kill a one-month-old outside the womb, it's wrong to kill this baby. It's wrong to kill this baby. It's dead wrong to kill this baby. And almost all of them are this size or larger. Uh, you can go to a website. You can go to a hundred websites. No use, no excuse for ignorance anymore. And just follow the gestational development. You can see it with videos. You can see it with pictures. It is phenomenal what you can watch today. And then find out the characteristics of these little ones at each stage along the way. In recent years, the gains in prenatal testing have introduced the possibility to abort children with traits that you don't want in a child, like female. In China today, because of the coercive one-child policy, Girls are aborted far more often than boys because if you can only have one, there are cultural reasons why they would go for a boy. Even pro-choice people in America find that to be, by and large, odious. One writer wrote something very telling. He said, you don't have to be a feminist to know that being a girl is not a birth defect. Hmm. That's a very ugly sentence because of what it implies about people with birth defects. Them, we abort. But not, not girls for being girls, surely. Just for Down syndrome. Spina bifida. Dwarfism. That's the implication of that horrid sentence. Eugenics. You ever heard that word? It's not a pretty word. I'll give you the dictionary definition for eugenics. Quote, the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable, heritable characteristics. So, for example, 
uh, Dr. Brian Scott uh, Co. Pediatric, pediatric geneticist, is that the way you say it? Um, at the Children's Hospital in Boston last November wrote this. An estimated 92% of all women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to terminate their pregnancies, close quote. And this is true even though Gary Bauer points out that there are waiting lists all over the country of parents eager and willing to adopt Down syndrome children. Last Friday in the New York Times, uh, we read this. 70% of Americans said they believe that women should be able to obtain a legal abortion if there is a strong chance of a serious defect in the baby. So while significant changes are happening, especially among the younger generation today toward pro-life, that's a sad statistic still. 70% say there should be legal, safe abortion for women to take the life of a baby who is seriously defective. Uh, Wesley Smith in the Weekly Standard, uh, 2008, April 2008, wrote this. With the development of prenatal genetic diagnosis, the drive toward eugenics has returned with a vengeance. Americans may heartily cheer participants in the Special Olympics, but we abort some 90% of all gestating infants diagnosed with genetic disabilities such as Down syndrome, dwarfism, and spina bifida, end quote. Now, as a pastor who is on my way to heaven and uh, has a short time to minister to the church, I don't consider it to be my main responsibility to change America. My job is to shepherd the blood-bought flock of the living God by declaring the whole counsel of God and to plead with God that the church walk in the light and be the light and the salt. If the church were the church. I feel a very direct responsibility for you, in other words, and what you think about this. What you think about this, what you believe about this, how you behave about this. What we as a church say about this, that's where my heart really burns. I, I, I cannot own the responsibility of the church outside Christ, of the people outside Christ. This, there's plenty of Christians to, to get shaped up. And what a difference it would probably make. One estimate is that 70%, I saw this in a video at abort73.com. I, I think that's one of the best sites there is, by the way, abort73. One estimate is that 70% of the women who get abortions in America are professing Christians. 
That's my, that's my people. 70% of the women who get abortions profess to know Jesus and follow Jesus. So I have enough work to do with the church. I know that many in this church have had abortions. In this room, who, who knows how many, right? And you're sitting there wondering, what would, he know, what would he think if he knew? Well, I'll tell you what I would think. Um, the best news in all the world is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you wonder, what's the center of Bethlehem? around which everything rotates. What's the, what holds here? What's the main thing? And the main thing is Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The main, the main thing is the message to every one of you who have encouraged abortion, a dad, a mom, a grandmama, an uncle, a husband, or did it. The, the main message there is God, for your sake, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. So that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That's the center of our life. The exchange. Murderers, rapists, liars, greedy, proud pastors. Saved by grace on the basis of an exchange in history where the Son of God is put forward to bear our sins and His righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone. That's the centerpiece. And then, when that's fixed, and we're standing there shaking for wonder that we could be accepted by the living God, we speak prophetic words to each other. And to the world. And don't get saved by those prophetic words. Get that? That's what I would say to you. That's what I do say to you. My aim in this message is modest and explosive. If the church really took hold of it and lived it, here it is. The message is that God knits all children together in the womb with his own creative, wise hand, sovereign hand, and they are all destined for a purpose of displaying the glory of God. And therefore, they have value and should not be killed. None of them. None of them. No matter how disabled. Let me put in a little princess here. I, I, you can't answer every question in a sermon, right? Ooh, what, what does he think about this? What does he think about this? I know Steve Calvin pretty well. He's probably the most experienced, caring, Christian, neonatologist who has spent the last 25 years doing nothing but make hard decisions of ectopic pregnancies and the like. All he does is try to save either babies who shouldn't be born yet because they're at 23 weeks 
or moms because the baby is going to die. No question about it. I'm not about to tell Steve how to do his job. He's totally pro-life, and he's totally there for those moms and won't let both of them die if he can help it. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. So when I say none of them, you understand. Now, I, I wish that I could hand out to every one of you a copy of Krista Horning's book, but it's not published yet. Krista is a young woman in this church, and you'll get to know her better when the book is out. It's going to be published by Desiring God in March, Lord willing, and it's about the disabled children of this church, and it is absolutely stunning. It will be either loved or hated by people, and there will be people who hate this book because it is so Godward, so saturated with an embrace of the sovereignty of God in the lives of disabled children in this church. I wish I could give you every one a copy. It's called Just the Way I Am. And I pray, here's the way I think about this sermon and what remains of it. I consider one of my goals in this sermon to so speak that you would love that book rather than hate it. Now, you don't even know how that quite works yet, but uh, when you get it, you will tremble and you will find yourself on the razor's edge of going one way or the other. And I would like to tip you to the side of, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Psalm 139, 13 to 15. So that's the basis of my point that... uh, Every baby in the womb is knit together by God, and every baby is a wonder, and every baby should be born, if it possibly can be born, and there's a a purpose for the glory of God and the good of His people through the birth of the most profoundly disabled children, and I am not unaware of some of the absolutely horrific abnormalities. I gather them from off the web. If I told you some of the pictures I have in files called culture, in my, you would think I am weird because I simply will not let myself be naive about the horrors of this world. I'm not going to stand up here and talk about God's sovereignty in pain and have you come show me a picture and say, oh, I would have never said it if I would known that existed. I don't think you could show me a picture worse than anything I've ever seen. So, let's go to John chapter 9, would you? That's the introduction. John chapter 9, we need to hear God, not Piper, right? A little context here before we look at verse 1 in John chapter 9. He, Jesus, had just said... One of the most outlandish things he ever said, maybe the most outlandish thing he ever said in verse 58 of chapter 8. Just run your eyes up a couple of verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Now that's doubly outrageous. Before Abraham was, I was would have been outrageous. Like this man is claiming to have existed before Abraham. <laughs> before Abraham was, I was. That's outrageous. Who do you think you are? It's crazy. And that's not what he said. He said something doubly outrageous. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And biblical people among you will remember what he's doing. He's reaching back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the sacred name of God. I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you to Moses. So, at the very moment when Jesus has made his most outlandish claim to deity in the Bible, I think, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I'm God. I'm Yahweh. And they took up stones to kill him and to kill God or this man who was so outrageous to call himself God. Now, the next thing that happens is he meets a man born blind. So, let's Let's go there. Verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's going to be a connection between before Abraham was, I am, and what happens here. So hold that in your head. We'll come back to it. The disciples here make a mistake as far as Jesus is concerned. They're like, they're like the friends of Job. If you wonder how to orient them in the bad theology of the Bible, <laughs> there's a lot of bad theology in the Bible, but the Bible makes clear where it is. It's here. So they assume a certain causality structure, namely, there's a specific correlation between this man's disability, he's blind, and somebody's specific sin. Either he sinned in the womb, and, and they thought that way, like Esau and wrestling in the womb, and rabbis would talk about what sin Esau committed. So either he sinned in the womb, or his mom and dad did something bad, and they're being punished. And, and Jesus rejects both of these explanations. He knows, just to not go too far here, he knows that suffering, sickness, uh, disability, death are in the world because of sin. Romans 5, 12 to 21, Romans 8. 18 to 23. He knows that when sin entered the world, death entered the world. Suffering and futility and pain and disability and deformity and disease all entered into the world when sin did. So, yes, yes, what we see in the world, this, this horrible world we live in, is owing to sin. But Jesus rejects 
the specific correlation between this disability and this person's sin. We won't go there. That's not the way it works, he says. In fact, he goes another direction entirely. Um, the disciples are seeking for a cause. And Jesus comes at the causality through the effect. Verse, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. So get that Job's friend-like way of thinking out of your head. But it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the cause of this man's blindness is a, something's going to happen out there, and God means it to happen. So the cause is God's design in the womb for the sake of that good thing out there. It wouldn't have even entered Jesus' mind that anybody but God made this man in the womb. Verse 4, got to be careful here, lest we think we are on to what Jesus is doing, and he's always doing more than one thing. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. My guess is that the first meaning of that is, I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm going to die. And when I'm gone, I won't be able to do any more of these things here. So I'm going to work while it's day. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, that's where I get that idea. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, ooh, so obviously, Jesus has got two things going on here. The man is physically blind. And he has been from the day he was born. He can't see anything naturally. And Jesus is going to do something about that. And then he adds, I'm the light of the world. That's another kind of light, and you don't need eyes to see that. Not these. You need these. There are probably proportionately as many blind people who see Jesus' light as there are seeing people who see Jesus' light. You can see with these eyes and not see Jesus as the magnificent light of the world and fall on your face when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You can be totally seeing and not see that. And you can be blind and see that. So he's got two things going on here. He's got physical blindness and he's got the issue of spiritual light. I'm the light of the world. See this? No, they wouldn't have stoned him two verses ago. They didn't see it. So you've got to have another kind of eye besides these eyes to see that. And that's a big concern to Jesus. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. Really? Well, yeah. He could see. He could see with his physical eyes. Is that enough? Jesus is done with him? This should remind you of something. <laughs> if you've been around Bethlehem for a couple of years, this should remind you of a chapter we've been over, right? This should remind you of, we've been here before. Remember chapter 5? The man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Couldn't get down into the water fast enough. And Jesus, on a Lord's day, like here, is getting himself in trouble all the time. He's going after this issue. That's, that, we'll save that for later. And he, he raised the man. The man stood up and walked. He walked. And he ran. He ran away. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't see him as the light of the world or anything. So Jesus had given him legs, and he's given this man eyes. Is he done with both of them? He's not done. He tracked him down. Remember that? In chapter 5, verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, I healed your, your legs. Now be healed! Because holiness is more important than health. Don't sin anymore. Because if you, if you just throw this, this life I've just given you away and walk into sin, you're going to perish. That's the worst. Something worse is going to happen. I gave you legs so that you walk with me and see me and love me and know me and be holy. So every time Jesus does something like this, you kind of get the impression he's after something more than physical health. <laughs> Indeed he is. So does that happen here? Chapter 9? Go to verse 35. Verse 35 of chapter 9. So now the man's been given eyes. He's in big trouble with the uh, Pharisees. And they kick him out of the synagogue. And Jesus hears about that, and he goes after him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, there it is again. He's, he's tracking these guys down till the whole thing gets done. He's not in, he didn't come into the world to just make people feel good, have good eyes, good legs. He's, he's got something so much bigger at stake. So, he, he, he answered, no, missed it. Do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? So he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? So faith is the issue here. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I know who you are, but who's the Son of Man? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You can just feel, I think, all the longing and the beckoning. You have seen him. Have you seen him? You've seen him. Have you seen him? And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he went 
down in worship. And now all the pieces come together. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, yes, indeed, I am here to be worshipped. I am God Almighty on the planet. You're blind. I'm using my power. See. And the man watches and he sees. And he tracks him down. Do you see? He didn't say, well, I see. Do you see me? I am the light of the world. You've got one kind of light, I'm the other kind. If you don't have this kind, you don't have any kind. You will go into outer what? Darkness. Forever, if you don't see me with those good eyes I just gave you. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped. That's the goal of the Gospel of John in this room right now. That's the goal where you're sitting is that you right now would see Christ and just go on your face and worship Him. And then I would know whether I have preached in vain. So when verse 3 says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed What's the work of God? It's two things, at least. His natural eyes were open, and he saw with his spiritual eyes, this is the light of the world. This is the I am before Abraham. I'm worshiping this man. And that was a work of God. And that's why the man was born blind. So that both of those would happen and that we today would read about it and be saved. God's always doing a thousand things whenever he does one thing. Your salvation tonight, if it happened, or your encouragement, or your strengthening, or your resolve, would be one of the good works Planned in this man's blindness. God is like that. He knows what was happening 2,000 years later. He knew John Piper would preach on this. He knew it would be put in the Bible by John. That's why he made this man blind in the womb. So we could talk about him today. And a million other reasons that that man never knew. So, here's my conclusion. Every disability, whether genetically from the womb or circumstantially from an accident, like Johnny Erickson Tata, or infectiously from a disease, how many blind people are there in the world because of these little flies? In every disability, God has a design, a purpose for his own glory and for the good of his people who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
And therefore, it is wrong to think that such children in the womb are unimportant or that they should be killed. It's wrong to think that they don't have a unique purpose in the world that's significant. It's wrong to think that they don't have any God-given worth. It's wrong to abort them and to kill them. And therefore, eugenics by abortion is an abomination to God. Now, I'll close with two objections that I could think of. I was sitting here just thinking, okay, what might someone object to what I just said on the basis of this text? Let me answer a couple of objections. Someone might say, this man got his eyes and was able to benefit himself from the work of God. My child stayed blind. Or they might say, my child never had the mental ability to process the biblical truth about I am the light of the world or before Abraham was I am. My child never got beyond six months in his mental capacity. That's true. That's very often true. And I don't mean to say that the full scope of the work of God in the lives of the disabled always happens in this world. I would say usually it doesn't. Not for any of us. And we're all partially disabled and we get more disabled the older we get. None of us is fully healed in this world. There will be a resurrection and he will descend, the Lord, and he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So the works of God do not all happen here. Many of them happen at the resurrection and the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we live with our disabilities to his glory here. And I don't mean to say that the only people that benefit from disability are those whose disabilities are overcome. I mean those for whom it's not overcome and the people around them. We can't tell what's going on inside the mind and heart of many mentally disabled people. You can't tell. Only God can, and he does. But the work that he does in the lives of others around this person, that's a miracle. Works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness of hope are amazing works of God that put all his all-satisfying glory on display in parents and brothers and sisters and friends and churches. Second objection, the last one, and we'll be done. Um, someone might say, but, but these people all lived 
Even Lazarus in the Gospel of John lived again when Jesus waited and let him die so that the works of God would be manifest. Even he lived again. So what about the disabled who die? Indeed, what about any of us who die? Is dying the great triumph of the enemy for the disabled, for us, or is death swallowed up in victory? Should we say, here at death, the glory of God has ended? Or should we say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the way we should talk about dying? Is the death of the disabled meaningless, or is it too appointed by God for the glory of His name? And here I want to just close by taking you to chapter 21 of John. So if you want to turn there with me, or you can just listen. John 21, I want to show you a text that moves me very, very deeply, has always moved me. It's just so counter what most people think is the way a life of devoted service should end, namely Peter's. This is the, the word of Jesus to Peter about what's going to happen to him leading up to and in his death. And notice the language. This is chapter 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, Simon, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. That's what able-bodied people do, right? We dress ourselves. You dressed yourself and would walk. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. We walk wherever you wanted. You were able-bodied. But when you are old and we would add disabled, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That's amazing. I got a death plan for you. You're going to get real old. You're going to get real disabled. And they're going to crucify you upside down for my name. No, I won't go there. I won't say that the disabled who die, die in vain. That the disabled who die come to an ignominious and meaningless end. I won't go there. Not with that text in my mind. God, I close by restating my point. God ordains with his hands. He knits together in the womb every child, the disabled and the abled. And he has a, a destiny and a purpose for His glory and the good of 
this person and anyone else who will trust him, who are called according to his purpose and love him. All of this is going to work out for his glory and their good. Therefore, it is wrong to think that such children in the womb or out of the womb or in their doddering old age are unimportant or without unique God-given worth in this world. Eugenics by abortion is an abomination to God. In the name of Christ, don't do it! And if you have done it, remember, we have an advocate. Jesus, the righteous. And God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we sinners might become the righteousness of God. So I pray, Father, that eyes will be opened. I pray that our people would have gifts of healing. We haven't preached about that, but we believe that. There are gifts of healing in our hands. And you often glorify yourself in removing disability. And you very often glorify yourself in the disability. So I pray for eyes to see Christ as the light of the world, Christ as the before Abraham was, I am. Christ as the Savior, Christ as the advocate, Christ as the substitute, Christ as the risen, reigning, coming, transforming Lord. Do your saving work through this message and your sanctifying work, your eye-opening, purifying work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.